Hey everyone, a quick programming note off the top. Uh, unfortunately, Arden and I are both sick as hell right now. Uh, so we're going to save our chat about my flip phone experiment for an episode that's right around the corner. Uh, today's episode is no slouch though. It features my interview with the most renowned attention researcher in the world uh, of our time, Dr. Gloria Mark, and I think you are going to dig this one as well as our new book, which we talk about. Uh, also, don't forget that episode 100 is next, and it's a Q&A episode. So email your questions, ideas, comments, stories, whatever you've got. I'm at chris at chrisbailey.com. Uh, we might feature you on the pod. It's going to be a fun one, a little celebration of sorts right around the corner. So without further ado, here is my interview with Gloria Mark, the author of Attention Span. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Gloria Mark onto Time and Attention. Uh, Gloria is the Chancellor's Professor of Informatics at the University of California, Irvine, and she's easily one of the world's foremost experts on how we manage our attention. Uh, you'll also find her name, along with her frequent collaborators Mary Sherwinsky and Shamsi Iqbal, tucked into the acknowledgement section of Hyperfocus. And uh, after listening to our conversation today, I think you'll you'll quickly find out why. It's basically impossible to write or talk about the subject of focus at work without referencing Gloria's extensive body of groundbreaking research. And fortunately for all of us, she's now distilled this treasure trove of insight down into her brand new book called Attention Span. Uh, Cal Newport, friend of the show, has called it a must-read for anyone concerned about our diminishing attention, and I could not agree more. Uh, the book is an incredibly fascinating look at the rhythms of attention in the modern world. Uh, do yourself a favor, pause the podcast, and just pick up a copy of this book. You will not uh, regret it, and you'll make back all the time that you spend in it, and then some. It's a must-read for navigating the attention traps of the modern world. So welcome to the show, the author of Attention Span, Gloria Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah, it's nice to to chat with you again. So reading this book, well, my high, I had to. I, uh, my first highlighter actually ran out when I was reading this book because there was so much that was worth highlighting and that I just wanted to talk to you about. But I want to begin by chatting about this ingredient of attention in our lives. So maybe let's start with basics. What is the point of getting better at managing our attention? So, so there are a lot of benefits in focusing our attention, and let me. Let me unpack that by explaining what happens when we don't focus. Mm. So when when we shift our attention frequently, uh, which is also known as multitasking, uh, there's there's three ways that it harms our performance. So the the first way is that it imposes a switch cost, and the best way that I can explain a switch cost is through a metaphor of thinking about a whiteboard that we have inside of our minds. So every time we do any kind of activity, we have a mental model of that activity. And so we, we think about writing all the information you need to conduct that activity on this internal whiteboard of the mind. Mm. Uh, you, If I'm writing 
uh, an article, I have the information I need, the, the facts that I need, maybe the people involved, and then I suddenly switch my attention to work on something else. It's like erasing that whiteboard and rewriting new information yeah. on that whiteboard. And then I switch that task again and do something else, and it's the erasing and rewriting. And so when we switch our attention rapidly, we have to do this additional work. It's, it's called a switch cost. Um, so it takes longer to, yeah. to do anything. Uh, a second uh, way that this kind of attention shifting harms us is that uh, we make more errors. And we know from decades of laboratory research, people make more errors when they shift their attention. We know from in vivo studies that uh, people in professions like nurses, doctors, pilots make more errors when they mm. shift their attention. And, and the last, uh, I would say, nail in the coffin is that multitasking causes stress. Mm. And there is causality there. It's not just an association, but it actually causes stress. We know from laboratory research that blood pressure rises. We know there, there's a physiological marker in the body that indicates people are stressed. Uh, in, in my research, we've used heart rate monitors as people go about their daily work. And we see that when people's attention starts shifting, uh, their, their uh, heart rate monitors indicate they're stressed. And, and of course, people report subjectively that they experience more stress. So paying attention longer uh, benefits us be, because we don't suffer from these problems that incur when people are switching their attention. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, e email and, and multitasking often go together. And th this is you know, one of the things I love about your research is how much of it is con conducted in situ. So in the, in, in the natural knowledge workers habitat and email is one of the fascinating things that, that I see you publishing research on. And you have so many uh, great insights about email in this book, how stressful it tends to be, how batching email doesn't work as well as we think it does, how our attention spans are longer without it. I'm curious, in, in all the research you've conducted on email, what has surprised you the most about it? Uh, what, what surprised me the most is that it confirmed my intuitions, right? Everybody complains about email, but finding empirical results to back up what people are actually saying about email, uh, it, it causes stress. And again, we, we see causality. It's not just an association, but it actually causes stress. Uh, when you remove email, stress goes down. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really complex uh, phenomenon because the, the sender of the email is the person who benefits. The recipient of the email is the person who has to pay the cost. So we see mm. this imbalance of costs and benefits playing out. So, um, the you know, people who are most stressed are the receivers of the email because uh, they, you know, they have to do the extra work and email is a symbol of work for people. So there's 
there's a lot of complexity uh, wrapped up in email. What What is it precisely that makes email so stressful? Is it the fact that these are all kind of commitments that we have that are imposed by other people? Is it the fact that it never seems to end? Have you been able to pinpoint exactly what makes email so stressful and multitasking stressful for that matter too? Yeah, I, I think there's several things. So one of them, as I mentioned, is that it, email is a symbol of work, right? So yeah. it's it's very different than, say, going to read the news where you may not have, you may not be expected to uh, use a lot of, say, mental effort uh, yeah. or social media. People don't use a lot of mental effort. But when people use email, there, there is effort and challenge involved, and and we've shown this empirically, uh, and that's and that's why it's related to stress, because people, you know, have have to use some kind of effort to to answer the emails. Um, yeah. There's also, uh, you know, social dynamics that are involved in email, so people want to maintain a. A, a good account of social capital. That's why we answer emails. So, you know, if I get an email from you, Chris, I, I'm going to answer it because I I want you to answer my email in mm-hmm. return. So there's this reciprocity that's also involved in email. And then, of course, we we seek social rewards and we keep checking our inbox because uh, at random intervals we'll get those rewards, right? It's a kind of conditioning called randomly intermittent reinforcement. So it's not every single email that might bring some good news, but every so often we'll we'll get one that does. So we keep checking our our inbox to find that reward. So so there's, there's a lot of reasons. And of course, there's just habit, you know, plain habit that uh, leads us to check email, which interrupts our work, and of course imposes a cost on us. Mm. So, so you mentioned how batching doesn't necessarily work as well as we would want it to. Is there a, a, a an easy or maybe low hanging fruit to eliminating some of this stress that's associated with email, or is this kind of a part of our work that's like, oh, okay? We all have to do email. We can't, like, trying to solve emails, like trying to solve rain. We can't prevent it from falling. We can just change how we were. Is there an easy um, kind of way to mold our work to be less stressful, especially around email? I I think there have to be organizational solutions Mm. to address this. So no individual can fully pull out of email. I mean, you could do it for a while. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, you you can't do it for a long time because, you know, we need to communicate with colleagues. And I'm I'm talking about knowledge work, uh, knowledge workplaces. So we we have to get results from our colleagues. We have to deliver results. Uh, We get organizational communications. So, um, So we can't fully pull out. But I think there are some things that organizations can do. So some companies have quiet time during the day, which seem to have promising results. I've I've not seen empirical studies done to confirm that they do. Uh, 
But some countries actually have a right to disconnect policy, and I'm very much a big fan of those. I think in we fact, have that in Ontario. I think you, we got you that do. a few Yeah. You do. And because I, I know you're right now based in Ontario. Yeah. Uh, there's an El Comrie law in France, and there's also policy in Ireland. And right to disconnect laws ensure that an employee is not penalized for not answering electronic communications after work hours. So it's so important for people to psychologically detach from work. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. if you know that there is no expectation that you have to check your email or Slack or whatever your communication system is, it, it gives people a respite. And it actually helps people psychologically reattach to work the next day. Mm. But, you know, organizations can do other things as well. Uh, They can move from a a push model of sending information out to more of a pull model. Mm. I could see that uh, at the team level, you know, setting up a team wiki is uh, is something that's very beneficial. And, and, you know, a lot of teams do that already. So rather than having information fragmented, receiving it in separate e- emails, you have it all in one place yeah. that's accessible. Mm. Love it. So you, you briefly mentioned low-skill or low-effort low tasks, I should say. And one of the interesting insights from your research is how rote tasks, they tend to get a bad rap, but we they, they lead us to more happiness than we kind of give that kind of activity credit for. And you even write in the book, uh, you go so far as to say that, that, quote, the public narrative that we shouldn't allow for mindless rote activity is not based in science, end quote. And I'm wondering if you can dig into this idea a bit for listeners, because I always feel a little bit guilty when I engage in these rote tasks, playing a little game on the phone. And I know Arden, my, my wife slash co-host of the podcast, um, not to not to call her out, but she likes playing a lot of Sims <laughs> um, when, when she, you know, comes down after a, a big week of teaching or, you know, maybe submitting a research paper or something along those lines. So is this guilt a bit misplaced? It seems like rote activity is better for us than we, we give it credit for. It, it actually does have a benefit for us. So, um, first of all, let, let me explain what I mean by rote activity. Yeah. Uh, when, it, when I started studying attention, um, I realized that we can be engaged with something and use a lot of mental effort, such as writing a paper or, you know, trying to understand tax law, uh, which is something been trained to do recently. Why why would you want to do that? (laughs) Because I have to. Oh, yeah. That's Uh, the only reason anybody would do that. Yeah. So, uh, but but there's other things we do where we can be deeply engaged and there's not a lot of mental effort like playing a, a simple game on your phone, playing solitaire, even reading social media doesn't involve much mm. effort. So, um, we did a study, and this was a study done with Mary Shervinsky and Shamsi Iqbal at Microsoft Research, where we sent people probes throughout the day. And 
the, the probes appeared on their computers and phones and asked two very simple questions. How engaged are you for the thing you were doing right now? And how challenged were you? And so we had timestamps when people answered these questions. And based on that, uh, we found that people experience different kinds of attention throughout the day. So sometimes they were engaged and challenged. We call that a state of focus. Sometimes they were engaged and not at all challenged. And that's a state of rote attention. Sometimes they were neither challenged nor engaged. We call that boredom. And sometimes they were challenged and not engaged. And we we label that a state of frustration, mm-hmm. right? Like if yeah. I have a tech problem, I'm I'm very challenged. To to solve it, uh, but I'm just not engaged and and not tax law motivated or t- yeah. tax law might rather be frustration. <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it turns out that uh, and we also measured mood that people actually are happiest when they do this kind of rote activity. Why? Because it it involves very little effort. And, and of course, people can focus for long periods of time on something that doesn't involve a lot of mental effort. Uh, if people have to do some kind of work that's challenging, like writing a paper yeah. or, you know, reading some different difficult material, uh, there's just a limit. There, there's a, a, it's a, a physiological limit. Uh, of how long people actually can pay attention mm-hmm. before um, they start to feel cognitive fatigue. So, uh, so rote activity can provide a respite. So, if someone is doing, um, you know, using mental effort in some kind of task, uh, it's really important to take a break and pull away and do something that's much less effortful. Do you and have a go-to uh, game? Just curious. Or, I do. Yeah? I do. I Candy have, Crush is mentioned a few times in the book. Uh, that's not my my oh, okay. thing. A lot of people I've interviewed and spoken to use Candy Crush, so that's why I use it as an example. I, I have this anagram game that's uh, that I just go to. It's mm. it's calming. It makes me happy. Um, and you know, in the book. I talk about the work of uh, the the great writer and poet Maya Angelou, and she talks about her big mind and her little mind. And her big mind is when she does her focused work, and her little mind is when she does crossword puzzles. And it allows her to pull away from her big mind and to to get replenished and refreshed. So so wrote. Attention does have a function in our lives, but we have to be strategic, right? We we can't do yeah. road activity all day because we, we have to get work done. So, you know, it's important to strike a balance and to um, to use limits, right? Because we don't want to get stuck in a rabbit hole of, of doing rote activity. And in the book, I talk about attention traps. And the road attention trap is is a big one that people can fall into. So, so it's really important to protect yourself from falling into that trap, spending inordinate 
amounts of time doing something that's that's fun and engaging. Um, so um, so be strategic about mm. it for recharging. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so I, I love that writing that you have in the book on attention traps. The one that really stuck out to me was the identity trap, where we spend a lot of time and attention designing and maintaining our online persona. Uh, yeah, I, I'm wondering if you could explain that idea a bit for listeners, what attention traps are and how we can uh, know when we've fallen into one and uh, aren't really using our attention wisely. Yeah, so attention traps are patterns of behavior that people get stuck in. And and this is based on just years of observing people, talking with people, um, hearing about the difficulties people have in, uh, you know, in paying attention and what causes them stress. And I find uh, various patterns of behavior. One of them is the road attention trap. The other is the identity trap you talked about where people, their online identities can be as important, sometimes even more important than their physical world identities. Mm. And so it it draws them into maintaining uh, their identity. And this, this can really take up a lot of time. Another attention trap is our behavior with social media, and mm-hmm. this will be familiar with a number of people. It's it's where you expect to just go on to social media for five minutes for a quick check, and before we know it, we're just down the rabbit hole, and an hour has gone by, and we yeah. keep thinking, where, where did that hour go? Uh, and then uh, the last attention trap is the sunk cost trap. So many, many people might know what a sunk cost is. It's where you, you're doing something and you realize that it's not panning out and it might even lead to failure, but it's so hard to pull away from doing that activity because you've already invested so much time and effort into it. Uh, so an example is, let's say I go onto the New York Times, there's a very long article, and I start reading it, and um, and I realize, well, it's it's only providing me marginal returns in value, and yet I, I stick with it because I feel, you know, I already started it. I already spent some time on this, uh, and the rational thing to do is to simply stop and pull away. Uh, you know, people experience sunk costs on a larger scale if you start a business and the business is failing, and yet you you keep pouring money and time into that business, thinking it's it's just it has to turn around if I put more money into it. the The intelligent thing to do is simply walk away, cut your losses, and when we use the internet. We experience sunk cost traps all the time, right? We we might go to a new site. We might go to social media. We'll start doing something. And we don't want to pull away because we feel like we, we need to finish it. This happens with gaming. So mm, a lot of sense. games are yeah. designed so that people can increase their levels. You know, you can rise to a higher level. And you you can't simply quit that game 
you can't stop playing that game because you've already invested so much time moving up levels in the game. And so it's it's what game companies use to keep people glued to their games. Yeah. So so yeah, sub cost is another kind of attention trap. Interesting. So the social media trap, I'm curious about that because, you know, talking about road attention, social media, we're recording for a bit of background for listeners. We're recording this um, this conversation the day after TikTok's CEO testified in front of Congress. Um, did you watch it, by the way? Did you watch the testimony? I, I, I watched just a few minutes of it. Yeah. Uh, for for some reason, I don't know why. I, I love these these congressional testimonies, and so I watch the whole thing. Um, it's probably healthier just to do a few minutes because, you know, unlike me, you probably have much better things to do with your time. But uh, a, a lot of the the questions seem to center around this idea of control uh, and how we lose control over our attention when we use the app like TikTok. Um, I'm curious what you've found or in your research or just what you think about this. Um, do we really lose control of our behavior when we're on our devices or is there something uh, different at play there? Uh, so some people can lose control and hmm. it's, it's just like anything. There are individual differences. And some people are born with very good skills in self-regulation. Um, and some people are born uh, without the ability to control their behaviors. Um, it's just like with a number of other things, like with smoking and eating and substance abuse. So, you know, for people who are born lucky with a trait for good self-regulation, um, that they are in control. You know, they they generally don't have problems uh, stopping themselves from going to social media when they have, say, a deadline. On the other hand, if they do take a break and check out social media or news, they have good regulation that they can just spend a few minutes and come right back to work. In fact, in uh, a study that I've done, we found that people with good self-regulation can actually get themselves burnt out and exhausted because they 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 don't take enough breaks, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're driven, they're <laughs> they're very good at uh, staying on task, and you know as a result they they can get burnt out. But you know there's there's a very large group of people who have very poor self regulation skills. And the typical kinds of reports that I hear is that they feel they, they have no agency, that they're, the, the computer is determining their behavior. They're simply reactive. They're reactive to the, the notifications, to uh, chimes, text chimes. And so, um, you know, that's the group of people who have... Um, it's it's much more challenging for them. Mm. Um, so there are certain traits that we can have um, that make us more susceptible to losing control of our behavior. Um, I'm curious, what kind of matters the most in that regard? I, I remember you talking about or writing about in the book, conscientiousness, neuroticism, uh, impulsiveness. Is there one that matters more than others in, in terms of 
contributing to how uh, how likely we are to lose control of our attention online? Yes, people who score low who score low in the trade of conscientiousness and people who score high on the trade of impulsivity have a much harder time mm. uh, keeping control. And conscientiousness and impulsivity are correlated with each other. Interesting. So, um, so this this combination is uh, is a very good indicator that a person has, uh, you know, a difficulty keeping control of their attention. Interesting. I, I always seem to score high on the conscientious and uh, high on impulsivity. <laughs> so I'm probably somewhere in the middle <laughs> of those. Yeah, two. that's that's actually. Uh, Unusual, you know. Usually, uh-huh. we see a, a very strong correlation of high conscientiousness and low impulsivity. Interesting. So, f- final question. You know, I'm, I have an eye on the clock here. That time flies when you talk about interesting stuff like this. But I, I love one of the things I loved about the book. One of the many things is how you write about the countless factors that influence our attention. Um, from our level of cognitive resources, uh, circadian rhythm, to the time, uh, sense being awake, possibly hormones as well. I'm curious, you know, kind of leaving uh, listeners with something to be mindful of, of all the things that influence our attention and focus throughout the day, what do you think is worth being most mindful of when it comes to managing our attention? Yeah, I I would say one of the best things that people can do is uh, not not get yourself exhausted. So be, be aware of when you're starting to experience cognitive fatigue. Mm. And, and it's time then to pull away and really take a significant break and, and get replenished. Uh, when, when we start an activity with a, a full tank of cognitive resources, we can perform so much better. We we can be so much more productive. But you know, if we try to simply power through the day and our cognitive resources drain, then we we just don't perform very well. In fact, there's there's really there's even a chemical basis in the brain that explains cognitive fatigue. So there's a neurotransmitter called glutamate that actually builds mm. up when people have long periods of sustained focus. And it, it sends us a signal that says, hey, you know, we're fatigued. Let's, it's time to pull back and, you know, give ourselves a rest. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people don't listen to that signal. Um, but, but people should, and then they can perform simply a, a lot better. Uh, you know, people also have natural rhythms of attention, and I would say it's really important to uh, be aware of when your peak focus times are. We we find for most people, their peak focus is mid to late morning, and then they have a second peak mid to late afternoon. Um, and you know, it's it's a function of people's chronotype. If you're an early type, of course, you're Peak focus is much earlier. If you're a late type, it's it's much later. But you know, plan your day to put the most important tasks you have to do 
uh, at the time when you have your peak focus and to um, and and to design intentionally design significant breaks into the day give, give as much importance on the the times of respite as the times of performance and you know I, I hope that my book can can reframe the narrative uh, so that we put well-being first when we use our devices, right? Our, our devices were designed to increase our technological capabilities, but we, we find they're exhausting us, yeah. right? Uh, people feel like we, we have the technological capability to do more, therefore we should. But let's think instead about what we can do to maintain well-being because uh, when we feel positive, we actually can do more. There's, there's a psychological theory, it's called the broaden and build theory, which shows empirically that when people feel positive, they actually have a, a, a wider repertoire of actions that they can take. They can generate better ideas. They can um, think of you know, more ideas of higher quality so, so let's maintain our well-being and, and let's end our days uh, with net positive well-being as opposed to being exhausted. So um, that's, that's the best advice, I would say, to give about uh, using attention. Love it. The book is Attention Span, uh, just where it's available wherever books are sold. There's an audio uh, book too, right? Yes, there's okay. audio and Kindle. Do you version. read? It? Do you, do you read the audio? Do I read? You mean yeah. listen? Do you narrate? Do you narrate? Oh, the, do, am uh, I? No, no, yeah. no, no. <laughs> I, I, I would have been interested to do it, but I, I just didn't have the time. It, it required a, a, a solid yeah. block of time uh, for about two weeks, and I, I just it's a, it's a process. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, however you uh, listen to it, read it, soak it in. Uh, Attention Span is the name of the book, available wherever books are sold. A groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. And that's what I love about this uh, this work is it's about productivity, but it's about so much more than that. It's about actually enjoying our work, becoming immersed inside of it. Um, and uh, having productivity kind of take care of itself because we manage our attention with the goal of becoming happier and uh, living a better life. So Gloria, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Chris, for inviting me. 